How are y'all today? Y'all doing okay? Yeah? All right. Piper, you all right? Good. All right, we got a nod. We'll take it. So how did you get here? Your mom? Your dad? No, 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 no. How did you get onto this earth? Where did you come from? God made us. Listen to this. But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel. So, who made you? God made you. Does God make mistakes? No, never. He's never made a mistake. That's kind of amazing. Do you make mistakes? Do I make mistakes? Yes, lots of them every day, right? But does God make a mistake? No, and he made you. That means that in his eyes, you are special. He's crazy about you. He loves you. He loves to see you doing life together. He loves to see you doing good things. He loves to see you loving other people. And this is what God says, the God who created you, who formed you, the God who does not make mistakes, said this, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Who do you belong to? God. He says you are his. You belong to him. He made you. He formed you. He knows you by name, and you belong to him. So sometimes in life we get scared, right? I get scared at night sometimes, right? Scared of the dark, scared of some noise, whatever. What can we remember when we're scared? Yes. God is with you. Perfect. Well done. Yes, God is with us. The God who made us, the God who loves us, the God who redeemed us, the God who has called us by name, and the God to whom we belong, he is with us. I think you get it. So wherever you go, whatever you do, who's right there with you? God. God, that's a pretty big promise, right? All right. Well, let's say a prayer, and then you can go to Hope for Kids, and it's going to be fun today. I've seen what you're doing. I already read about it. It's pretty cool. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these precious children. Thank you for the gift that they are to our lives, our families, and our church. Thank you, Lord, that you know them, you made them, you love them, you redeemed them, and you call each one of them by name, and you promise to always be with them wherever they go. Help them to live in the strength of that promise that you are with them, that you know them by name, and that you walk with them all the way through life. And we just thank you for your love, for the promise of your son, Jesus Christ, and the hope that he brings to each of our hearts. Uh, fill these children with your Holy Spirit. Lead them into a deeper understanding of your love for them through your son, Jesus Christ, as they study your word and hope for kids today. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Y'all have a great time. That's my favorite part. Y'all bore me. There's no point preaching to you. I know you. Well, your, your correct response would be, there's no point in listening to you preach because I know you. So let's, uh, let us, the fellowship of the broken and the sinful, uh, come before God in prayer as we prepare our hearts for his word this morning. God, our Father, we, we do acknowledge that um, sometimes it feels like there's no point in even opening your word. Our hearts are dull, our minds are gone, um, we get distracted, we get uh, taken up into our own desires and lusts, and we forget who we are in Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would ground us today in your word, that you would recenter us. We confess to you our need for forgiveness and we thank you for the mercy and grace that are ours in Jesus Christ. May we come before your word this morning in the freedom of knowing that we are forgiven and loved. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts for your word, we lay at the foot of your cross the burdens and distractions in our lives. We give you those relationships in our lives that are strained, and we pray for your peace and reconciliation where it is needed. We lift before you those whom we know and love who are sick or recovering from medical procedures or facing uncertain diagnoses, and we just pray uh, your healing mercies upon your people. We lift up uh, this country and our leaders at every level of government elected and appointed, and we pray for wisdom and discernment in the decisions that are before them. We lift up those who serve to protect and defend our Constitution we pray that you would watch over them and keep them safe. We pray especially for those who are in harm's way and ask that you would bring them home soon. And Lord, we lift up this world in which we live and the chaos that seems to reign. And we thank you for the progress that you continue to make in our hearts and in this world and spreading your love and grace to the hearts of mankind. We lift up especially the people of Ukraine this week and we just pray you would watch over and protect them in the midst of warfare. We pray that your peace would come to that region of the world. And Lord, we um, lift up your church here at Hope and all over this earth. We pray that your word would go forth through the mouths of your people, that it would not return to you empty. And Lord, we ask that you would um, be with those churches to whom we are connected through our denomination and our missions giving. We lift up uh, Paul and Elizabeth Branch in Guatemala. We lift up John and Diane Davis in Laredo, Texas. We lift up Pastor Miguel and Tatiana Broche at our sister church in Camajuani, Cuba. And we lift up Patchy and Marilyn Quesada in Havana, Cuba. We lift before you Robbie and Joyce Hamd as they continue to serve uh, ministries in Beirut, Lebanon. And we lift up Monica and Benjamin Bailey in the Middle East, and we just pray your continued blessing over the works you are doing in and through them. We lift up the church plants that are going on in Texas through our denomination in Katy, in New Braunfels, and in Austin, and we just pray your blessing over those young works. We ask you would be with us now 
as we open your word, open our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're in a, the midst of a series of messages right now through the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet who lived about a hundred or so years before the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonian Empire, and he predicted the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonian Empire. And he basically told God's people, if you keep living like this, if you keep lying and cheating and stealing and hating, God's going to just sort of lift his blessing from you and let you suffer the consequences of your own actions. And so God's people did not listen, and about, you know, 100 some odd years after Isaiah passed away, Jerusalem fell. The miracle of the book of Isaiah is not that he predicted that this um, declining society would one day collapse. The, the miracle of Isaiah is that he saw that God would take from that collapse a remnant of his people and rebuild and renew and restore hope in this world. Isaiah saw not only that God's people would return from captivity, that they would rebuild Jerusalem and most specifically the temple, but that that temple would one day consecrate a king who would be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Isaiah somehow saw that through the destruction that was coming, God would, from the ashes, raise up a new people, a new uh, presence of his people, and that through that restoration, he would bring about the hope, the eternal hope of the Messiah. And so we, we've seen the three themes that run throughout the book of Isaiah, that sin causes separation, that the Messiah brings salvation, and that through that Messiah, God promises to his people eternal sanctuary. So separation, salvation, and sanctuary. Uh, we are in the section of Isaiah that is beginning to develop more specifically this idea of salvation. Um, but you see these threads woven throughout the book. And so we are going to turn our hearts this morning to the 43rd chapter of the book of Isaiah. And we're going to ask ourselves, what is it that God wants from us through this portion of his word? And I think what, if I can just sort of reset that context, God's people have been carried off in captivity. Their city has been destroyed and laid waste. And they're beginning to understand this promise of return, that they can come, they're going to come home, they're going to rebuild, they're going to be renewed. And this idea that in the wake of the devastation in our own lives, we can expect God to move. We can expect that the God we know is a God who still cares, who still acts, who still supports and, and walks with his children. And so that is the theme we're going to look at this morning, this idea that we are to expect God to move. And this is Isaiah chapter 43. I'm just going to sort of try to give you um, a feel for the whole chapter. We're not going to read the whole chapter. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, then verses 19 through 21, and then verses 24 and 25. I encourage you in your own time to read the whole chapter 
it's, it's good. Um, but for the sake of just trying to focus on the main points in this series, we're just going to hit these high points in chapter 43, and uh, then we'll talk about them a little bit and contemplate uh, the ways in which God wants us to respond to this portion of his word. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burned me, burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Once burned, twice shy. Right? Not just because it's an Aerosmith song. Right? I think it is. Is that right? Any rock and roll? It's just a line? Once bitten, twice shy. Yeah, sorry. All right. Great white? Really? All right. Very good. Well, that's way better than Aerosmith. <laughs> Once burned shy. Is that true for you? Mm-hmm. And what? <laughs> or four times burned, 
a thousand times shy. Um, there's a multiplying effect. And life, life brings these burns, right? We don't have to elaborate on that very much. Um, so God's people are defeated militarily. And I'm going to try to explain something. War in these time periods that we're talking about is not, it's not over oil. It's, it's a total domination and subjugation of your enemy. And so when a foreign army comes marching through your gates and they've overwhelmed you and they have taken over, they do horrific things. And then they steal everything. And anything that was once important to you that was sort of a centerpiece of your culture is either destroyed or taken back to their king in a foreign land. And so when Jerusalem was overcome by the Babylonians, it wasn't just a military defeat. Literally, their temple that they had created for worship was removed from its foundations. And it was utterly and totally destroyed. And all of its contents were put onto wagons and carried off to the king of Babylon. The walls of Jerusalem were, were pulled down and the stones were spread out. And so over the next 70 years, you just have dirt and weeds and there's, there are animals grazing where you once had streets and markets and houses. It's just a wasteland. And the message was very clear. Like you mess with the king of Babylon, here's what you get, right? And those foreign kings were also smart enough to not kill everyone. They realized that living people pay better taxes than the dead. Our government's kind of reversed that, I think. You pay more when you, never mind. Um, but these empires were built by subjugating enemies and, and bringing them into the tax-paying fold. And then, well, you know better. And once you see that king roll one other tribal people, you behave, you might even say, hey, I'll tell you what, you don't kill any of us, and, and we'll just start paying taxes to you anyway. How about that, right? And so these empires would build and build and build. The people of Israel have been devastated. And what does God say to them in their state of exile, in their state of insecurity, in their state of living in constant fear? I will be with you. And this message that we see in Isaiah chapter 43 is for 
the devastated heart. That we are to hear the voice of God say to each of us things like, Thus says the Lord who created you, who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. So our first takeaway from this passage is simple. Stop living in fear. Well, it's simple to say, right? But then there's that whole once burned, twice shy. That if something hurt the last time we tried it, maybe we'll do something different this time. And God says, I am with you. I'm in this. I know you. I love you. We, as God's children, are to claim our security in Christ, to know that we belong to him by name. We are his, and to know that he is with us. That is the I am, and this is a, this is a name, the name of God, and it is repeated so many times in the book of Isaiah, and especially in this section where Isaiah begins to build the theology of salvation for broken people. I am. That's the God we serve. The God who always was. The God who is now. And the God who always will be. He knows you. He loves you. He has redeemed you. There is security for your soul in that truth. We are to claim that security, and we are to know that we are redeemed. That means purchased or repurchased, that a price has been paid to bring us back into right relationship with God. So <clears throat> there is some, some kind of bizarre poetry in verses 3 through 7 in this passage. And I'll, I'll read some of it to you so you know where I'm, what I'm referring to. But in this passage, God says that you are precious in his eyes. That's in verse 4. In verse 3, he says, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. This is the language of um, like prisoner exchange. Okay, and empires would do this after battles. They would barter for each other's prisoners if, if you know, they didn't have a clear defeat. And what is, what is being expressed is this is the very beginning of an idea that does not yet exist fully in in biblical theology, this idea that a life can be given in exchange for another life. So Isaiah, I, I don't want to say this like, this is going to sound like I'm saying it lightly and I'm not, but Isaiah is beginning to play with this idea in his own mind, in his own writing, of what we today in theology call substitutionary atonement. 
that one life can be given on behalf of another. So this is the very one of the very earliest expressions of this idea that a person can be redeemed in God's eyes by the righteousness of another. And so it's not in this chapter, it's not fully developed as, I'll I'll tell you what the full development looks like. That this idea of exchange and you have one person giving his life for another person to redeem them from, the, from a death penalty, if that one person is also the eternal living God, if he is Jesus Christ, then the value of that gift of his life in exchange for another has eternal application. He can apply it to as many souls as, as God wills. And so you have this idea beginning to develop that God is going to send a Messiah who will offer his own life in exchange for ours. This is very early. This is very new in the, in the development of theology that, that God himself, and we've already seen Isaiah talk about this Messiah, that his name will be God is with us, Emmanuel. And so... Because these, these are, this is poetry, this is, so you, you, you don't want to take this um, too woodenly. You just kind of want to let the idea flow through your soul that God is going to give someone else's life in exchange for yours. The, the fleshing out, literally, of that truth, will, will, that will be made more and more clear as I, Isaiah develops this idea. But here, we just need to understand that God is setting up the possibility that we can be saved from our sin through the sacrifice of another. And so, we, we start here in this idea that we are redeemed, that God is going to substitute for us the life of another to, to give us eternal life. This idea of redemption means that we are coming under a new authority, a new truth, a new reality, and that reality is God's love, that you are precious to him. Um, there's a, a pastor out of Chicago um, whose famous line is simply this, God is crazy about you. He is absolutely crazy about you. And I love the simplicity of that. It's so true. And if you look at what he says here, you are literally precious in his eyes. He delights in you. We saw that last week. Um, so we, the redeemed, are to come under God's love, to know that we are precious to him, and we are to come back into his family. Verse 5, I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north and to the south, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Anyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed, 
and made. We are part of an eternal family where there is life and health and relationships that give life, that bring joy, that fulfill. You are part of something so much bigger than what we can comprehend. And so when we, when we sing these songs, they weren't written by people in this room. They were written by people in other places and oftentimes in other time periods. And we are connected to this incredible web of people who make up the family of God. And so when we, when we sing an old hymn, we're connecting ourselves to people in centuries past who, whose faith and understanding of the love of God through Jesus Christ is amazingly, shockingly the same as yours. Um, I, I think, you know, we have a sister church in central Cuba, and the first time I ever was there, I, I was standing out in, in the street in front of this, this church, and the congregation was gathering for worship, and I was struck with the feeling like, I have nothing in common with these people. Like, this is really overwhelming. Um, and I slowly, as, we, as the worship service began, and people continued to show up, and even the musicians would show up later in the service, you would love that. <laughs> you know, like two songs in, and the, the twins come in. Um, and uh, so as this whole thing begins to take shape, I realize, like, there is a common denominator here. And it's, it's our mutual understanding of the love of God, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is the common element that we share. Our cultures, our economies, could not be more completely opposite from each other than they are. And yet, we are united through the blood of Christ to a truth that transcends culture and place and time and makes us part of God's eternal family. And so this is what allows us to stop living out of fear, that we are not bound by our fears. We are actually in Christ. We are freed from them. So if, if this is true, that we belong to God, he knows us by name, he is always with us, we are precious in his sight, we are part of his family, he would substitute another for our forgiveness, that we are, live under his love, if this is true, then we are called to begin to live expectantly with the expectation that God will move, that God will redeem, that God will restore, that God will do his work and his will in our lives. Living expectantly begins by living in a state of constant renewal. I love in chapter 19, I'm sorry, in, in verse 19, Isaiah is quoting God who says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. 
Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And this idea that God is in the business of renewal, of taking our terrible attitudes and turning them around, repurposing our hearts for his good. So this idea that God is somehow in the refurbishing business, that he takes things that are old and broken down and he restores them and renews them, gives them new life. To live in a state of constant renewal means that we follow the way that God has laid down for us. That is in verse 19 as well. That way is the way to the Messiah. The path that leads to forgiveness, to grace, to eternal love. That we live in this state of constant renewal by following the way and by drinking in His grace. Did you catch the wording I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is the God whom we serve, who moves into the, the dried-up wastelands of our hearts and pours out water and brings back life, that we need to be a people who live with the expectation that God will renew. That's very different than the head-down, defeated perspective that is so tempting, once burned, twice shy. God doesn't want us burdened by that past. He wants us free to live in his love. The difference is astonishing. And it's as, it's as big of a contrast as a river in a desert. So, we live in a state of constant renewal, and we are to live in a posture of constant worship. So, it is common, I think, to think about what we do when we gather here on a Sunday morning, or if we gather somewhere else and we sing some hymns or songs of praise to think that that's what worship is that is worship but worship is every other moment of every other day as well worship is all of it and god wants us to worship him everywhere all the time because guess what he is everywhere all the time. Our lives are a worship, a, a service of worship to our Creator. That is 
part of what Isaiah is trying to unpack for us in these words, that we are the people whom God formed for himself, verse 21, that they might declare my praise. We are to thank the God who chose us, and we are to praise the God who made us. In fact, you could argue we were made to praise him, not just here, but everywhere. That if you think about the difference between a heart that lives out of fear, that lives with a sense that they've been defeated and broken and that there's no hope, and the heart that has been redeemed at the price of the life of another, to be demonstrated to them that they are precious, that they are loved, that they have a place in God's eternal family, that that soul is precious in the sight of God, that he knows you by name, and that he has brought you to this point of renewal and restoration and forgiveness and grace and hope eternal. And that is what it means to worship, to live out of this truth that we are renewed at the price of the life of another. We are free. We are relieved, literally, of the burden of our sin. And so we're to stop living in fear. We're to start living expectantly. We expect this God who loves us to renew to pour out his grace, and to call us into a, a state of worship, continual worship. And then we are called to stay rooted in the gospel. So it's in many ways really telling that Isaiah goes from these glorious passages of how much God loves us, of the fact that he's going to redeem us at the price of the life of another. And then he goes back to, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. This is a place that we actually need to stop and and sit in for a moment. So, there, is, um, there are a few things in this world that are worse than people who are just flat out arrogant. Um, and if, if I come back to this truth that I have wearied God with my sin, that I've burdened him with my iniquity, that is a very humbling truth. That if you, if you think about everything that God has done for me, and then I turn around and just go back to my sin like it's no big deal, I need to go back to that truth that I'm, I'm the one who's broken, I'm the one who's, who brings sin into this relationship, and that it's God who forgives. It's God who, who redeems. It's God who restores. Um, 
I, I, you've, you've heard me tell this before, um, but just to put it in, in lighter terms, you've read the, the cheesy poem, Footprints in the Sand, right? And I look back, and there's only one set of from like, God, that was the toughest time of my life. Why is there only one? Why, where were you? He's like, I was carrying it, right? Well, my poem is called Butt Prints in the Sand, and it's like, what are those? And God's like, I was sick of you, man. You're, you're just, you keep going back to your sin time and time again. And I'm being silly, right? But the, the, the content, and we've all felt that way, I'm sure, but the content is here, that, that God is wearied and burdened by our sin. But instead of dropping us in the sand, listen to what he does. Verse 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. You are to give God your brokenness. That is, you're to stop trying to earn his love. You can't. You already have it. It's his gift to you. You're free. All we are called to do is simply to acknowledge our sin before him. This is called confession. There is another step. It's called repentance, which means turning away from our sin. But we are to give God our brokenness continually, to come back to this painful truth that I have a problem. And in that posture of humility, I am then to enjoy God's forgiveness. That God is the one who has chosen to redeem me, chosen to restore me, chosen to bring me back to a place of life and hope. To enjoy our forgiveness means that we are to know we are no longer defined by our past. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. You are no longer defined by your past, by your sin, by anything other than the eternal love and grace of God through Jesus Christ. And in that truth, we have what the Bible calls freedom. You are eternally free in Christ. And so, God has done something that we could not do for ourselves. And the history in Isaiah is itself a metaphor that we have been taken captive by our sin, that we are bound by it, that we are burdened by it, that we are not free that we have left in the wake of our lives devastation or we have been overrun by the sin of others and left in the wake of their devastation. And in that state, we are to expect God to move, to change, to deliver, to redeem, to restore, to renew, to forgive. And when we come into that truth that our own sin is a source of devastation and separation from God, then we can look 
to the Savior, the salvation that he has provided through the Messiah, and literally leap for joy. Because the burden is gone, the chains are off, and our hearts are free. You are loved. You are precious in God's eyes. He gave one precious to him in exchange for you. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are part of an eternal family. And you are forever free. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we marvel at your grace. And though we have felt at times that you dropped us in the sand, we know the truth is far from that. That you indeed are the God who picks us up, who carries us forward, who dusts us off, who cleanses us from our sin, and restores us into right relationship with you and with each other. You are the God who makes us part of your family, who forgives, who restores, who renews our joy and calls us into a posture of worship that we can sing praises to the one who brought us out of the devastation of our own sin. Lord, we thank you for that love that never stops, for the perseverance of your son to go all the way to the cross and to the grave and from the grave to rise again and rise to be seated at your right hand to make a place for us with you forever. We thank you that you are the God who is with us, that you are the God who loves us, that you are the God that we can expect to move in our lives. Help us, Lord, to live with a sense of expectation that you, again, shall move. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.